so uh, this week and the next time I speak, which is two weeks from now, the next week I'll be in Idaho at a conference that I'm doing, but I want to do two messages. It's not two parts of the same messages, but two different messages to address the same issue. And I want to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith, which is something I talk about a lot. But at Shepherd's Conference, I don't know if you noticed that panel van that was parked on the street that had like LCD lights on the panel and a big QR code that you could go to. And it turns out these were guys who infiltrated the Shepherd's Conference and were handing out literature that went to a website that was just flat out cultish wrong. And it it irritated me. And so I want to deal with their heresy uh, for the next two times that I'm talking. They were basically saying, if you went to their website, the very first line basically said, after studying Scripture, they said, we have decided that salvation is not by faith alone. There must be works. It's such a blatant violation of so much that Scripture says, and yet I want to talk about it because they, uh, they also tacked on to that a challenge. They said, if you want to come here and straighten us out, if you can prove that we're wrong, they said, we'll give you $25,000. I sent them a text message that proved they were wrong, and, and uh, turns out what they mean is, if you can convince us that we're wrong, we'll give you $25,000. And since they're unteachable, that's a, that's a fool's errand, so I'm not going to do that. But I want to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith and the truth that, it, that runs through the New Testament that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That is not of ourselves. It's not by works, so that no one may boast. And every time this truth comes up, Scripture adds that on there, so that no one may boast. My Shepherd's Conference, uh, I think it was my general session message, I traced, and I didn't know those guys were going to be there, so I wasn't responding to them, but I traced all the places in the New Testament where the, the stress is put on that truth that we don't have anything to boast about as saved people. Our salvation is entirely God's work and nothing that we can take credit for. And so I want to sort of unpack that truth and look at it. And I want to start this morning by going to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, I apologize for my occasional coughing if I do, because I've had bronchitis all week. In fact, I was at home most of the week in bed with a fever I'm not asking for pity. Just a little understanding, you know. Actually, Darlene cares for me so much that no one needs to pity me. You can pity her if you need to pity somebody. So we'll be looking at Galatians 2.15 through 21. And these are, I believe, the key verses in the whole epistle to the Galatians. These verses encapsulate the heart of Paul's message to that church. Here is where he makes his central point in this whole epistle. Here is the best summary of his answer to the heretics he was writing to confront. And if you misunderstand this little section of Galatians, you will miss the point of the entire epistle. So don't underestimate the importance of this passage. This is the pivotal passage in the book of Galatians. And if you've listened to me very long, you're aware that I often stress that the the one key difference between the true worship of the true God and all other forms of false religion, the key difference is this. False religion always focuses on human righteousness. It's always about something we must do to make ourselves acceptable to God. And that's why man-made religion is always prone to multiply rituals and ceremonies and sacraments and pageantry and clerical garb and all the other externals to the exclusion of authentic faith. Human religion is invariably man-centered, works-oriented, self-righteous. And by contrast, authentic worship of the true God is focused on God's work, His grace, His glory. It's not about something we do to make ourselves acceptable to God, but The focus of genuine faith is on what God has already done through Christ to make atonement for our sins. It is not works-oriented. It's grace-oriented. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. It's not about self-righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness. 
So bear in mind the context of this epistle. We studied through it verse by verse several years ago. Some of you weren't even born then, maybe, but uh, I'll give you a quick review. These false teachers, whom we always refer to as the Judaizers, had come into Galatia, which is a region, not a city, but it's a Gentile region. And these guys were from the church in Jerusalem, and they apparently claimed authority as leaders in the Jerusalem church, because Paul refers to them in, if you're in chapter 2, verse 12, he calls them certain men from James. And that's a, that's a reference to James, who was the earthly half-brother of Christ. He plays a prominent role in the dispute with these same heretics in Acts chapter 15. James was a leader and apparently the main spokesperson for the church in Jerusalem. By the way, this is the same James who wrote the epistle that bears his name. This is not the James who was one of the original 12, brother to John. That's that James, together with John, we know as the Boanerges brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee and Salome. They were fishermen. That James was martyred early in church history. This James was the half-brother of Jesus himself, according to Galatians 1.19. And if you compare John 7, verse 5, which says that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him, with Acts chapter 1, verse 14, which places James, this James and the other brothers of Jesus in the upper room with the disciples in Acts 1, with one accord they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So it seems James became a believer when he saw his resurrected brother alive after the crucifixion. And he soon became a leading voice in the church in Jerusalem. And so these Judaizers coming from that congregation in Jerusalem are referred to in Galatians 2.12 as certain men from James, which may simply mean that these heretics falsely claimed that they were delegates of James, but I'm more inclined to think that they probably had really been sent out originally in some official capacity by the Jerusalem church, because James and the leaders in that church weren't aware that these guys would go out and and teach heresy. Uh, and, And by the way, if they were indeed sent by James, that would explain why from the beginning to the end of Galatians chapter 2, Paul actually seems a little bit perturbed at the leaders of the church in Jerusalem because they had been so slow to see and respond to the serious danger that was posed by these Judaizing false teachers. If you missed our study of Galatians 2 several years ago, you might want to listen to those messages that go through this chapter because we talk about why, why Paul uses such sharp language here in Galatians 2 and why he had this public conflict with Peter and why he recounts the whole incident for us and in inspired Scripture to, you know, sort of record it for perpetuity, and he even names Peter by name, and he speaks about some of the other leaders in Jerusalem with language that is frankly less than flattering, because there was a much bigger issue at stake here than the dignity of Peter. The doctrine of these guys was subtle, but it was extremely dangerous, and it undermined the main principle, the central truth of the gospel, and it was an attempt by these Judaizing false teachers to turn Christianity into a self-righteous system of ceremony and rote ritual like the religion of the Pharisees. And as a matter of fact, Acts 15 verse 5 indicates that these false teachers belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, but that they had believed. They'd become Christians, at least nominally. They professed faith in Christianity. But the brand of religion that they practiced and promoted was exactly like the religion of the Pharisees, in that it was partly orthodox, in that they they gave lip service to the truth of Scripture, and they professed to be followers of the true God, true followers, but their doctrine was nevertheless dangerously heretical because their focus was not on God's grace and Christ's provision for believers, but their teaching was all about what sinners must do to gain acceptance with God, and that made their teaching fundamentally false. 
and it placed them at odds with the true gospel. So Paul is very blunt about how seriously wrong and how spiritually destructive the doctrine of the Judaizers is. And in fact, back in chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, he says twice, twice in a row, just for emphasis' sake, he says that people who twist the gospel like these guys were doing are to be regarded as accursed, which, by which he means treat them and assume that they are lost and unredeemed and under the condemnation of God. Now, the error of the Judaizers was, if you spell it out, it sounds like a fairly simple error. And by that, I don't mean it, w- it wasn't serious. It was serious. It was deadly serious. But it wasn't complex or esoteric. They affirmed everything the apostles taught except for the simplicity of the gospel of grace. And they insisted that Gentiles who came to Christ needed to be circumcised before they could be saved. That's why we call them Judaizers, because in essence, they were teaching that only Jews could be saved. You had to be Jewish in order to be saved. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to come to Christ, you had to become a proselyte to Judaism first. And by teaching that, they were in effect adding a work, a human work, as a prerequisite for justification. They were, they were teaching a doctrine of justification where something other than faith or something in addition to faith was the instrument and that fatally undermined the, the truth of the gospel. And Paul saw the problem immediately and clearly because as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was regularly ministering to these goyim, Gentiles, who had trusted Christ and they had had their lives transformed. These are people who had never participated in any aspect of Old Testament Jewish ceremonies people who would have been deemed unclean by the standards of Old Testament law. And yet Paul knew and understood very well that Gentiles could be saved without first becoming Jewish because he had seen the gospel transform so many of these people's lives. And now, get this in mind, Peter understood that truth as well. We know he did because Peter was the apostle sent by God to deal with Cornelius at Cornelius's conversion, and that was the whole lesson of that episode. Peter had received every kind of evidence that God saves Gentiles through faith alone. Peter had, you remember, received a, a, a divine vision along with a direct message from God. He was an eyewitness when Cornelius was filled with the Holy Spirit and miraculously spoke in tongues and And this was a dramatic and deliberate repeat of the miracle of Pentecost, mainly, I think, for Peter's benefit. And in Acts 11, Peter even reports this fact uh, of the Gentiles' conversion back to the church in Jerusalem. And he's kind of quasi-apologetic about it when he reports to this totally Jewish church that God was saving Goyim, Gentiles. He says, Acts eleven seventeen, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could prevent God's way? And I'm not sure he means to imply that he would have stopped it if he could, but, but it kind of gives you the feeling, doesn't it, that Peter was a little uncomfortable with this. Who was I that I could stop this? And if you look at the situation sympathetically, you, you, you might be able to understand why Peter and all the leaders in the Jerusalem church were slow to recognize the error of the Judaizers. Because this heresy, this idea that you've got to become Jewish before you become a believer, that wouldn't be a threat at all. It wouldn't be a direct threat in Jerusalem, because the Jerusalem church was overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, Jewish. So every male member in that congregation had already been circumcised, the doctrine of the Judaizers would have been totally under the radar of the apostles who oversaw the Jerusalem church. So perhaps it's not all that surprising that they missed the dangers inherent in what these false teachers were saying, because they didn't teach this doctrine in, in Jerusalem. They didn't need to. And it also doesn't surprise me or shock me 
that elders of the church in Jerusalem, steeped in Jewish traditions all their lives, might have sent these men out as delegates of the Jerusalem church. Because if these guys were former Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament well. They would have been skilled teachers. And if the erroneous parts of their message had never even come out in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem apostles wouldn't necessarily even know how dangerous these guys were. The whole church at Jerusalem probably thought that this little group of former Pharisees would be the ideal group to send on a teaching mission to the Gentiles, but their teaching actually brought havoc to the churches in Asia Minor because it undermined the assurance of the Gentile believers who were there, and it clouded the gospel. The seriousness of this heresy quickly became obvious, and especially obvious even when Peter himself began to separate from the Gentile believers in the Asian church. So that's, that's when Paul steps in and addresses the problem. And you, you know that he rebuked Peter publicly and forcefully, and he describes that in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read it. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And that brings us to our passage this morning. We'll start with the next verse, verse 15. And my aim is to get to the end of this chapter before we quit this morning. But before I read it, let me point out that I stopped reading there at the end of verse 14, but it's not quite clear where Paul stops recounting what he says to Peter and then turns his attention back to what he's writing to the readers of this epistle. There are, you know, several passages of Scripture with similar ambiguities. You don't know if the, 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 this is quoting someone or, or the writer of the book is doing it. John 3.16 is an example. Did Jesus say that, or is that John's commentary on what Jesus said? It's ambiguous because there are no quotation marks in the original Greek text. So there's some question about whether this section that we're going to look at from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, is that part of Paul's speech that he made publicly to Peter, or has he left off quoting what he said to Peter and gone back to writing directly to the Galatians? You can't really tell, but you know what? It doesn't really matter because all Scripture is God-breathed, and so this is revealed truth either way, and what it teaches is the most important thing. It's infinitely more important than the question of whether Paul said this to Peter or wrote it to the Galatians. It's true either way, and so we don't need to get sidetracked by a lengthy academic discussion of when Paul first said this, but I do have an opinion about it, and I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's look at the passage itself. This is a slightly longer passage than we normally would deal with in one bite, but I I do want to get through all of it this morning, so I'll read it in full, starting with verse 15, Galatians 2. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, as I've said, that passage 
contains the heart and soul of Paul's main message to the Galatians. He is defending the gospel, and specifically he's defending the simplicity of justification by faith against people who wanted to load the gospel with Old Testament legal standards. The whole point of this entire epistle is to defend justification by faith against the encroachment of Old Testament ceremonial law. And so I I want to point out something you probably have not noticed. In that passage I just read, you have the very first appearance in this epistle of the word justified and the, the concept of justification. Verse 16, this is the key verse that we'll focus on mostly. Verse 16, it's the first time that Paul has specifically mentioned justification in this epistle to the Galatians, even though that is the doctrine he's writing to defend. And in that verse 16, he employs the past tense of the verb to justify three times in that verse. Now, here's a second interesting fact. Verse 16 is also the first mention of faith as the instrument of justification. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, he spoke of the faith, meaning the Christian worldview and religion. But here in verse 16 of chapter 2, this is his first mention of personal faith as the instrument by which sinners lay hold of salvation. And here's another one, verse 16, also the first use of the word law. He's spoken of circumcision, and he's describing a conflict over the gospel with these false teachers. But verse 16 is the first time he spells out in specific terms what his conflict with the Judaizers is all about. It's a debate about the role of faith and the place of the law with respect to the doctrine of justification. And verse 16 is the key verse of the entire epistle. This is the place where the whole issue comes into focus for the first time, the law and faith and justification. So keep those three words in mind. That will make up our entire outline for this morning. And I'll tell you, I'm inclined to think that this whole section is part of Paul's speech that he made to Peter publicly. And in fact, the uh, Legacy Standard Bible has helpfully put quotation marks to show that they, they agree with me. So, so I appreciate that. I think this is part of Paul's speech to Peter. He's still recounting what he said when he rebuked Peter in front of everybody. This is, this is the speech he made. And notice, it is a long doctrinal discourse, which is why Paul felt this was important enough to recount publicly this, this and in great detail, this little conflict with Peter. It's a rebuke with a reason. He is not just blustering at Peter. He's not trying to embarrass Peter. This is didactic, meaning the main aim, the main reason this is here is to teach an important lesson, a doctrinal lesson, proving definitively that Paul's entire conflict with Peter was about doctrine. This wasn't a conflict over personality differences. This is not a dispute about trivial matters. It's not a culture clash. It's not a petty squabble about who's really in charge in the church in Galatia. This is about doctrine, and it's about a vital doctrine that is at the very heart of the gospel. So why do I think this is still Paul speaking publicly to Peter? When I first actually started to study this section, my inclination was to think that Paul left off the record of his rebuke at the end of verse 14, and then he turns back to the Galatians to start writing to them in verse 15. But it it doesn't take much thought to see why that's probably not the case. Here's why. The Galatians were predominantly Gentiles, right? That's what this is all about. The Judaizers wanted them to become Jewish. This is why this conflict arose in the first place. He's writing to a group of Gentiles, but in verse 15, he's clearly still talking to a Jewish person, because he says, we are Jews by nature. In other words, we're born Jewish. And it seems clear, doesn't it, that he's still reporting what he said to Peter. Here's one Jewish guy rebuking another Jewish guy in front of a bunch of goyim. We're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. That, by the way, was the Jewish designation for Gentiles, sinners. 
And Paul is not claiming here that Jews are not sinners. We know that. He spent the first half of Romans 3 proving that Jews are sinners just like Gentiles. He's simply using the common Jewish reference to Gentiles, who they were, because they were deemed utterly unclean pagans, sinners from among the Gentiles. We're not Gentile sinners, he's saying. We're Jewish sinners. That's the sense he conveys. So now watch the key verse, verse 16. He says to Peter, even though we are Jews by birth, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh, Jew or Gentile, will be justified. Even Jews are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And he's telling Peter, you know that, Peter. You know this is the case. Why are you acting differently? Now, I love this verse and the passage that surrounds it because verse 16 in particular sets everything straight that was wrong with the Judaizers' false doctrine. He he corrects their misconceptions about the law. He reminds them of the primary importance of authentic faith, and he rescues the doctrine of justification from their error. And so, as we work through this passage this morning, let those three words be the outline that guides us. The law and faith and justification, those are the same three crucial gospel words that each appear for the first time in verse 16. We'll take them up in a kind of reverse order compared to the order that Paul mentions them in. So we'll start with the idea of the law. And so here's point one if you want to take it down. Paul corrects their misconceptions about the law. He corrects their misconceptions about the law. Now remember, these false teachers were mostly, if not exclusively, from the tradition of the Pharisees, where the law was everything. And the Apostle Paul actually was a Pharisee prior to his conversion. He describes his own lifelong devotion to the law in Philippians 3.5, where he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's how he was raised literally under the law from day one. He says day eight, but that's the day he was circumcised. He was actually born under the law. Luke records Paul's testimony before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, verse 6. And there Paul says, brothers, I am a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. So his dad was a Pharisee too. And I think he says plural, son of Pharisees. I think he means even his grandparents were Pharisees. And when he says circumcised the eighth day, he's saying he was circumcised in exact accordance with what the law demands. Genesis 17, verse 12, every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. One who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. That's surely one of the key verses that the Judaizers pointed to and said, this is essential. It's a clear command of Old Testament. But notice that in Philippians 3, when Paul gives his own testimony, he he says he has laid hold of Christ and now is covered with a better righteousness, a righteousness that is not his own righteousness from the law, but a perfect righteousness that has been transferred to him by divine reckoning, imputed to him. And he came to regard his own flawed legal obedience as a Pharisee, regarded it as, he says, rubbish, which, but he uses a word that literally means dung, excrement, and he had no further use for it. But these Judaizing Pharisees had only made a pretense of coming to Christ, And they had dragged all of their old legal righteousness along with them, and they wanted everybody else to to measure up to that standard. They're determined to impose all the Old Testament ceremonies, starting with circumcision, on any Gentiles who wanted to come to Christ for salvation. And that message obscured the perfect freeness of salvation, of the gospel. 
Now, notice the absolute clarity of verse 16. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times in one verse, he says, this is not by the works of the law. During my student days, and I did a lot of street evangelism and and uh, personal evangelism in those days. And I once shared the gospel with a man in Chicago who was a member of the Worldwide Church of God. That was the cult that was founded by Herbert W. Armstrong. And this was back in the 1970s when that group was at its peak. And that, that group taught uh, an amalgam of 10 or 12 really serious heresies that they had borrowed from other cults. And so they had borrowed ideas from Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and whatever and mashed all of these errors into one really sinister legalistic cult. They used to have a dominating presence over here in Pasadena, but when Herbert W. Armstrong died, the, the group broke up into a bunch of smaller cults. Most of them have retained some of the worst errors of their cultish doctrines. I say that because I want to say, don't be fooled by reports that that entire group repented and became orthodox. A few of their members did, and we even have a handful of them here at Grace Church now. But in my student years, this group was at its peak. They were on the radio everywhere, and they blatantly taught and insisted that Christians are obligated to obey most of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, the feast days, the Sabbaths, everything, or else they said, you can't be saved. Classic Judaizer doctrine. And uh, in fact, I said they borrowed their doctrines from cultish sources. uh, Their actual main roots were in Seventh-day Adventism. And so they insisted on Saturday Sabbatarianism. They observed the Old Testament feast days. They required adherence to a number of ceremonial requirements from the Old Testament, and they insisted that all of these things are necessary for justification. Classic echo of the credo of the Judaizers, what Paul is addressing here. So when I was a student, I I started sharing the gospel with a guy who lived in the neighborhood there, and he was an older black man, very intelligent, very familiar with all of the favorite proof texts that were used by this cult, And he insisted that certain aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial law were essential for ultimate justification. So we got into a long conversation, and he was so steeped in that doctrine and so well-schooled by his cult that he actually had an off-the-cuff answer for almost every verse I showed him where Scripture teaches that salvation is not by works. I showed him all the familiar ones, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And he said, no, no, that's talking about good works outside the law. That's not the good works that God's law demands of us. Those things are essential. So I showed him Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not by works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Same thing. He said, that's talking about miscellaneous good works like acts of kindness and hospitality. That's not the ceremonial obedience that the law calls us to. He says, that's still obligatory. And so I gave him Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And again, he said, well, that doesn't say anything about the law of Moses, which spells out what God does demand of us. The law of the Old Testament is still obligatory. And I tried explaining to him how you can't possibly fulfill the law perfectly. You can't even perfectly fulfill the first and great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never done that for two minutes in your life. And he said, and in fact, I said, if if you can't do that, you're doomed because James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. And he said, yeah, that's true, but we can be forgiven for our sins as long as we keep trying to obey the law. He was just determined to put himself under the law. And I was a student and still a fairly young Christian, so I wasn't quite sure where to go next. And something providentially directed me to this verse. 
Galatians 2.16. I think I found it through a cross-reference from Romans 4.5 in the margin of my Bible or something like that, and I had him read this verse to me. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Three times, again, he says, not by the works of the law. And when I showed him that verse, finally, he didn't have an answer. And I remember he talked himself in circles for a while, and for a minute or two, I thought, he's convinced, he sees it. But within five minutes, as we moved past this text, he went right back to insisting that law-keeping is absolutely essential for justification. So I brought him back to Galatians 2.16, and I had him read it aloud again, and he was reading from the King James Version, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That's a long verse, and he was, but he was a smart man, and he was keenly interested in Scripture, and he saw the point again, I think. But then once more, a few minutes later, he defaulted back to, yeah, but you have to obey the law. And so I had him read the verse again. <laughs> and again. And again. And I think as the conversation progressed, I must have had him read that verse aloud some 30 times. It was a long conversation. In fact, I still have vivid memories of it. We were sitting in his living room in the low-rent district of Chicago, and probably for at least three hours this conversation went on. And every now and then, in the middle of a sentence, he would take off a shoe and whack a roach that was crawling up the, <laughs> the wall. I think he swatted as many roaches as I had him read that verse, which seemed kind of symbolic, you know? But what I remember even better was the way the light began to dawn on him as we talked, and he really began to embrace the truth that you can't be justified if you place your hope in, in your own obedience to the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's pretty clear. Now, this verse, by the way, also defines what the Apostle Paul means in several places throughout his epistles, chapter 5, verse 18, for instance, where he says, you are not under the law. Romans six fourteen. you are not under the law, but under grace. Here is what he means. You are not under the law for your justification. You're not dependent on the quality of your own legal obedience to determine your eternal destiny, because if you were, you'd be doomed. You can't obey the law perfectly. You're justified apart from having to bring your own legal obedience into the equation. That's what it means to be not under the law. A lot of people get really confused by this. I'm not under the law. They imagine that means the moral principles of the law have no further application to Christians, as if the Ten Commandments now have no authority to command our behavior. That is not what this means. We're not free to to live as if we despised the moral standard that is set forth in the law. But what it means is we're not under the law as a means of justification. I know I've stressed that many times over the years, but I don't apologize for the repetition. This is a vital truth. The law still gives us guidance as to what righteousness is. And if you want to pursue righteousness, you're going to have to pay attention to the law and what it commands, but don't trust in your own obedience as grounds for your justification because it's not. And that principle is anchored in the truth of this verse. You are not under the law as a requirement for justification because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. This also means that we are free from the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. Those things in the Old Testament that were required ceremonially, that foreshadowed Christ, those things have no, f- no further ref- re- uh, relevance. Because when you have the real thing, you don't need the symbol that foreshadowed it. That's the point Paul makes in Colossians chapter 2. It's the whole point of the book of Hebrews as well. Since Christ has come, 
all of the priestly and ceremonial aspects of Old Testament law have been abolished, the sacrifices and ceremonies, because they have no further relevance. You don't need symbolic animal sacrifices when once-for-all real efficacious atonement has already been made for sin. And you don't need a priesthood now because there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we're not under the law in that sense either. We're not obliged to, to follow all the ceremonial aspects that are spelled out for the Jewish nation. And I think that's what Paul is referring to in verse 18 where he says, "'For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor.'" He's saying, if you reconstruct the ceremonial law and try to establish a relationship with ceremonies and ordinances that were merely symbolic of Christ and His work, so now you're following the symbols when you have the reality, the fulfillment before you, that's the worst kind of transgression because, in effect, it tramples underfoot the work of Christ, which is exactly what Hebrews 10.29 says. And notice verse 19 in our text, "'For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God.'" He's saying he's now dead to the law legally and judicially because the law has already extracted from him everything that it can because Christ fulfilled its commandments for him and Christ also paid its penalty for him. So he owes nothing more to the law other than as a a guideline for his pursuit of true righteousness. The law can't extract any more from him because Christ died in his place. And verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. This is the principle of substitution, substitutionary atonement. And here is the main principle that explains our justification. How is it that we can be justified apart from the works of the law? Why? Because Christ died in my place. And therefore, the law has no further claim on me for punishment. And so, I live with Christ covered in His perfect righteousness, and I enjoy a perfect standing before God. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so hold that thought, and we'll come back to it in a moment when we look at the principle of justification. But anyway, here's the point. The law has no role or relevance as an instrument whereby we can either be justified or condemned. That's vital point number one, and it directly refutes the central point of the Judaizers' doctrine. So did you get that? Paul corrects their misconceptions about the law. Here's point number two. He reminds them that the principle of faith rules out works of any kind. He reminds them that the principle of faith rules out works of any kind. Now, this is the central and dominant theme of all Paul's soteriology. This is the heart of what he teaches about the gospel that faith alone is the instrument of justification. Paul had no place for the believer's own works in justification. As we've seen from Philippians 3, I referred to where Paul gives his testimony. He counted his own righteousness as dung, although Paul's righteousness as a Pharisee was pretty impressive from a human standpoint. He discarded an entire lifetime of fastidious obedience to the law so that, he says, so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is from God upon faith. That's Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. And that's consistent throughout all of Paul's epistles. There's this constant stress on a perfect righteousness that we lay hold of by faith, rather than earning it through our works. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, he makes this point of doctrine the dividing line between true believers and people who don't have any hope at all. He says this, there's Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, now to the one who works, that is to the one who wants to earn his own justification by doing good things to please God, to such a person, his wage is counted according, not according to grace, but according to what is due. In other words, the person who wants to work for his own justification will get the wage that he earns. He'll get what's coming to him. And since 
his righteousness, even the best things he ever does, like filthy rags, sinful self-righteousness, he's going to get paid accordingly. And what are the wages of sin? Death. So if you want to work, you die. You perish eternally, eternal condemnation. However, Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We'll look at that verse in more detail in in a couple of weeks, but he's, he's very simple here. He's saying the righteousness that saves you comes to you by faith. You don't earn it. It's not even yours. It's Christ's righteousness. And this was always the idea at the heart of Paul's gospel, and it was precisely the truth that the Judaizers' doctrine undermined. Now, what kind of faith does Paul have in mind here? Some have argued that he's actually talking about the faithfulness of Christ, Christ's faith. Uh, Look at the middle of verse 16. He says, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the very very next phrase, he repeats the idea, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. But in the King James Version, it famously says, we are justified by the faith of Christ, as if it means Christ's own faith. And the fact is, that is one of the possible ways to translate the Greek phrase here. And since the Greek word translated faith can also mean faithfulness, some have suggested that what Paul might be saying here is that the faithfulness of Christ is what justifies us. Now, that's certainly true that Christ's faithfulness procured our salvation, but I don't think that is what Paul is saying here. In fact, I think the clear sense of the Greek text is emphatically explained by the expression that comes in the middle of the verse, we have believed in Jesus Christ. He's talking about our faith in Christ, and and so that is how this verse is translated in most of the modern versions. Paul is teaching here as emphatically as possible that our faith as believers is the sole instrument by which we lay hold of that righteousness that justifies us. There are no legal prerequisites There are no ceremonial observances involved in this. No rituals, no external protocols can earn any part of our justification. We have believed in Christ, he says, and like the thief on the cross, we are instantly justified before we're baptized without any requirement of circumcision, without having to walk an aisle or sign a card or recite a prayer or any of the other things that people tend to make requirements in order to be saved. Faith alone, sola fide. That's the principle Paul is defending here. And as my former cultist friend in Chicago came to understand, there is no other way to explain the sense of verse 16. That's why this is the key verse of the whole epistle. And so Paul corrects their misconceptions about the law. He reminds them that the principle of faith rules out works of any kind, And now finally, he corrects their error with regard to justification. And now we come back to the issue of justification. Those of you who've been in grace life for any length of time are well familiar with this doctrine because this is probably my very favorite of all the truths in Scripture because it is the very heart of the gospel. And the proper focus of it is always Christ. What I mean by this is a proper understanding of justification always points us to Christ and urges us to fix our faith and our hope and our love and all of our desires on Him. And the primary lesson is that salvation is found in Christ alone. He has already provided for us everything we need to please God. Salvation is, therefore, free and full of grace. We don't do anything to earn it, and nor should we even think in those terms. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's why this is my favorite doctrine. Now you say, is all that in this text? Yes, it certainly is. It's wrapped up in the meaning of the verb justified, which comes from a a Greek word that's borrowed directly from the law courts. It's legal terminology. And it speaks of a declaration of divine righteousness. 
It's a verdict, justification. It's a divine decree. Justification is not a process we go through. It's not something I have to do. It's not something I even could do for myself to justify myself. Justification is a verdict that God pronounces on all who believe the instant they believe. You don't feel it happen. It doesn't happen inside you. It doesn't even happen in your vicinity. It takes place in the throne room of God. When God pronounces you righteous and accepts you for Christ's sake, He accepts you because of what Christ has done for you, not because of anything you've done for Him. And all of that is the very truth that Paul is laboring to make crystal clear in this passage. And on any normal reading of the passage, frankly, it is crystal clear. There's been an influential movement in New Testament scholarship recently that has gained quite a bit of traction over the past three decades, led by a few scholars, respected scholars, who are telling us, I think unnecessarily respected scholars, because they're telling us what we need to do is reinterpret all of Galatians and all of Paul's epistles in a totally novel sense that nobody ever saw before, a whole new light. You've probably heard me refer to this movement before. It's usually known as the new perspective on Paul. I've done a couple of critiques of the movement in various conferences here and also in England. And if you're interested in pursuing it further, you can download recordings of those seminars from the Grace Life Pulpit website. But here's a short word of caution to be on guard with regard to anyone who comes with a new perspective on Paul. If you hang around any length of time in the realm of evangelical academia, you are going to encounter well-meaning people who think that this is a novel approach to reading the Apostle Paul that's very exciting and full of potential and, and, and new insight. Don't be fooled by that. In fact, a word of caution. The new perspective on Paul poses some of the very same dangers that Paul was writing about here in Galatians. And in fact, at the top of my list of complaints about the movement is this. The new perspective undermines a clear and proper understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. Inevitably, it does. According to the new perspective, the real dispute between Paul and the Judaizers really didn't have anything to do with whether individuals are justified in the sight of God. They say that Paul's main complaint with the Judaizers was that these guys were cultural exclusivists. They were Jewish supremacists. They were the Hebrew equivalent of white supremacists, politically incorrect. Their error, according to, to this point of view, is that they were opposed to diversity in the church. They weren't sufficiently woke. And the problem, we're told, is not so much that they confused the way of salvation or the truth of the gospel. Their, their heresy, in other words, wasn't really a soteriological error It was a misunderstanding about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. It wasn't so much a doctrinal fallacy as a cultural one. And according to this view, the new perspective, when Paul speaks of justification, he isn't talking about individual justification at all. They say he's not concerned with the sinners standing before God. He's simply talking about who deserves a place at the table when Christians are having fellowship with one another. And you can probably see why that interpretation trips people up, because the idea of table fellowship does seem to fit the context of Galatians 2. That's what Paul rebuked Peter for, refusing to eat with the Gentiles. Peter wasn't woke enough. But if that's all this means, and Paul's complaint with Peter was merely that he's acting like a racial or cultural bigot you have to do a lot of violence to the rest of this chapter. Paul's complaint here is clearly and emphatically a problem with the false doctrine the Judaizers were spreading. It's not just about their bad manners and the way they treated Gentiles. These false teachers were clouding the way of salvation. They were not just committing a breach of social protocol. When Paul wrote this epistle, he is deeply concerned about the clarity and purity of the gospel message, and that's clear from chapter 1. He's not merely trying to, you know, sort out the eating arrangements in the Galatian potluck dinners. And the proof that he's speaking of individual salvation is seen, I think, in the pronouns he uses. 
He's talking about his personal and individual union with Christ in verse 20, and from verses 18 through 21, spanning four verses, he uses the singular personal pronouns, I, me, myself, at least 15 times. So he's clearly talking about something very personal and individual when he describes justification here. Now, I won't delve any further into that, but I wanted it on the record because we have some seminary students here. I know you guys are going to confront this stuff. But let me just sum up this point about justification. Faith is the sole instrument by which we lay hold of justification. Christ is the object of our faith, verse 16, and He is the one who has set aside the demands of the law for us And of course, he did that by fulfilling the law on our behalf, and Paul is going to demonstrate that a little bit later in this epistle to the Galatians. In fact, that's the reason Galatians 4.4, that famous verse says, Jesus was born under the law. He fulfilled the whole law perfectly, and he did that on our behalf. And then he also bore the penalty of our sin, verse 20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. And he did all of that in order to release us from any and every claim that the law might ever have against us. And that kind of legal substitution is possible because of our spiritual union with Christ. Verse 20, we are in him, and now he lives in us. His death counts as ours. Our life is hid in him, and we stand before God fully justified not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ did for us. And all of that, Paul says, is jeopardized by anyone who would teach that circumcision is a necessary prerequisite for salvation, because that put the sinner's work into the formula where only Christ's work properly belongs. And that's why the heresy of the Judaizers was so dangerous. It tore the heart out of the gospel. And can I share an honest concern with you? I think there are many similar threats to the gospel floating around today. That big panel truck with the bright lights during Shepherd's Conference is only one manifestation of that. But it's it's the same approach as these Judaizers. It's the same attack that false teachers almost always wage against the gospel. Like the Judaizers' heresy, it seems subtle, They'll agree with a whole lot of orthodox ideas, and in fact, these errors are spread by men who many in the church think are good and godly teachers, but to whatever degree this kind of teaching obscures the perfect freedom of divine grace and takes the focus off of what Christ has done for our salvation, it is to that degree a dangerous and potentially damnable doctrine. The sad thing is that too many in the church today are ignorant of sound doctrine. They're not discerning enough or cautious enough to to believe that, you know, such a benign-sounding doctrine, how can that pose such serious dangers? Look, even the Apostle Peter fell into that trap, at least temporarily. So it's a good reminder for all of us to be on guard and to study to show ourselves approved unto God workmen who divide the Word of God rightly and don't need to be ashamed. Now, some of you might be thinking, I'll never be a skilled theologian. I don't have any way of knowing, much less understanding, what's going on in academic circles. And and there is some truth in that, but the problem is that academic ideas don't remain merely academic ideas for very long. Bad doctrine moves into the church and it will appear in the Christian books you read or on the websites you visit. And even if you're never any kind of expert, you need to remain diligent and be like the Bereans. Get to know the gospel better than you know it now. That's the pattern of New Testament Christianity. That's what we should strive to be. We should say with the Apostle Paul, I do not set aside the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our tendency to wander from sound doctrine and to succumb to the lure of fleshly lust or the deception of our own covetous eyes or the arrogance of boastful pride. We admit we're too unsteady and too easily moved off the very foundations of our faith. So give us a clear understanding of how we are justified so that 
we might glorify Christ and exemplify His grace and be fit messengers of His gospel here in this fallen world. Free us from our earthbound obsessions, cleanse us from our secret faults, and may the knowledge that we are justified motivate us to follow Christ more faithfully, we pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.